Welcome to Peacemaking in Paris, presented by Professor Sir Hugh Strawn for UCL Institute of Education. This series marks the centenary of the Peace Conference in 1919, when the United States and Allied powers met in Paris to decide the terms of the peace settlements with the defeated Central Powers. I'm Simon Bendry, Director of UCL Institute of Education's First World War Centenary Battlefield Tours programme. In an earlier podcast series, From Amiens to Armistice, Sir Hugh looked at the sequence of Allied victories from the Battle of Amiens on the 8th of August 1918 to the armistice negotiated by Germany on the 11th of November 1918. In Peacemaking in Paris, he reflects on the peace conference and its legacy. In this podcast, he tells the story of the birth of the League of Nations. The story of the League of Nations is often told as an American story is a concept developed by the President of the United States, Woodrow Wilson, and one which he endeavoured to implement in Paris in 1919. Indeed, he did implement it, but then the United States Senate refused to ratify it. It's assumed that from there on in, the League of Nations is a dead duck. The trouble with this story is that it leaves out far too much of the League of Nations' origins and far too much of what happened after the United States failed to ratify it. The reality is that the leading player in proposing the League of Nations from the outset was not the United States, but the United Kingdom. When the First World War broke out, there were many in Britain who felt that it had been caused by a failure in democratic accountability, that secret treaties before the war had committed Britain to an undertaking which the wider public, and quite specifically Parliament, did not know about. As a result, a body was set up called the Union of Democratic Control, which was designed to ensure that in future instances where there was an international crisis, there would be a degree of parliamentary oversight and parliamentary control. Britain had entered this war, at least in its collective understanding, because Germany had invaded Belgium. And by invading Belgium, it had broken a treaty obligation of 1839 when all the great powers of Europe had guaranteed Belgium's neutrality. So underpinning Britain's justification for fighting in this war is the idea of the rule of law, that if you've entered an obligation, you must honour that obligation. And that creates a potential division between a more traditional view of international order, dependent on power relationships, and a more progressive view, dependent on the idea of democracy and increasing democratisation. This division is not self-evident in 1914-15, but it's important to understand its roots because that division will become increasingly important as the story unfolds between 1914 and 1919. The idea that there might be a League of Nations to implement the rule of law, an ambition that you could actually have a system of international negotiation in which great powers would resolve their disputes short of war, was, of course, in the context of a great world war, an extraordinarily attractive proposition, even if a somewhat idealistic one. It was one to which Sir Edward Grey, the British Foreign Secretary, was prepared to cleave, and it was one which several influential figures in Britain felt they should try to propagate as a basis for a post-war order. One of these individuals was Lord Bryce, former ambassador to the United States, a highly influential and respected figure, who was given the responsibility for looking at the truth of the claims that the Germans had committed atrocities in Belgium. These atrocities were the consequence of the breach of international law and were themselves a breach of international law. 
and Bryce was a lawyer by background. Bryce believed that the idea of a League of Nations should be promoted within the United States, and indeed there were influential American figures, academics, lawyers, political figures, who were supportive of this idea. Another great figure in Britain promoting the idea of the League of Nations was Lord Robert Cecil. He was a junior minister in the Foreign Office and in 1916 was given ministerial responsibility for the blockade, the economic war against Germany, which was designed to prevent Germany from trading globally and which Germany responded to ultimately with the use of unrestricted U-boat warfare designed to destroy Britain's ability to trade, especially across the Atlantic with the United States. Much of the international argument around the blockade pivots on international law, the rights of neutrals in wartime to trade with whomever they want. That is, of course, what the United States wants to do. The rights of belligerents to prevent the flow of contraband of goods of war by sea, including between neutrals and belligerent powers. What this highlights is that by the First World War, the status of international law has evolved considerably. Between the end of the Crimean War in 1856 and the outbreak of the First World War, the laws designed to contain war when it was being fought had really been refined. There were obligations for how you behaved in war at sea, for how you behaved in war on land, how you treated prisoners of war, the protection of non-competence, and so on and so forth. Underpinning all that was a much greater ambition within international law, not just to contain and restrain the conduct of war, but also to prevent war in the first place. International lawyers were not successful in the run-up to 1914 in making it illegal for states to go to war. Indeed, the First World War rested on the presumption that a sovereign state had the right to go to war. That was the definition of its sovereignty. And although Germany had breached a treaty agreement of 1839 when it had invaded Belgium in 1914, it had not actually broken any international law, although that was what Britain was saying. So what is the League of Nations to be? How is it to function? And how far does it really have a legal standing? The short answer is that it doesn't really have a legal standing because like any form of international law, it depends on a degree of consent. Its founding fathers assume that it will be a series of mutual obligations between sovereign states where they themselves will be bound by their common interest in preserving peace to be able to act when there is a threat to peace. In other words, rather than go to war, you will sit down and talk about the problem and resolve it through negotiation. The hopes of Bryce and Sassel and others that the United States would take up the idea of the League of Nations were not initially very successful at governmental level. The problem was that Woodrow Wilson himself didn't initially seem very interested in this. On the other hand, he had said in January 1917, when the United States was still neutral, although on the brink of entering the war, that what he wanted from this war was peace without victory. In other words, the object of this war was to create a better international order. It's not really until the 14 points of January 1918, produced in response to the Bolshevik decision to withdraw from the war, that Wilson really puts the idea of the League of Nations front and centre of his vision for a post-war order. It's important to note 
that David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, in his speech on British war aims to the Trades Union Congress just a few days before Wilson's speech on the 14 points, had himself included the League of Nations. It doesn't mean that Lloyd George was a great advocate in the same way that Bryce and Cecil were great advocates of the League of Nations, but he was certainly prepared to support it. But by the time the war ended, by the time Woodrow Wilson had travelled from the United States to Paris for the peace conference, Wilson had become, in the eyes of the international public, the spokesman for the League of Nations. Wilson had now imagined that the peace treaty would rest fundamentally on the League of Nations, that it would be the opening element of the treaty which imposed peace on Germany, and that the detail would follow. That anything that was unresolved in the peace treaties didn't need to be given too much attention because those sort of problems would be resolved by the League. They wouldn't be allowed to fester. So in his view, the League of Nations was work in progress. It would take a long time to develop. It's entirely reasonable when looking at Wilson's approach to the League of Nations in 1919 to go back to his origins as a professor of politics at Princeton, a man who had worked above all on the growth of the United States to be the world's principal democratic power, a man who had seen that as constant work in progress, as an organic undertaking where from its origins as a colony of Great Britain, the United States had inherited some aspects of democratic government and then refined and developed its own version of democratic government. So Wilson's vision of the League of Nations is very broad brush in 1919. The details of the organization are largely fleshed out through British thinking. The structure of the League of Nations envisaged in 1919 is that there will be an executive council which will implement its decisions, that it will have a parliament which effectively is made up of the member states, that it will have a secretariat, and that it will have a number of special commissions to look at individual issues. And the principle among them is the idea of disarmament. What the League of Nations does not have is a series of set procedures in the event of crises. Crucially, it has no provision for the use of force to implement any resolutions that it might arrive at. The big obstacle to Woodrow Wilson's ambition to have the League of Nations at the heart of the peace treaty with Germany was France, and in particular, its premier, Georges Clemenceau. Clemenceau began from a very different position from Wilson. His concern was France's future security. France had been invaded twice in his lifetime, in 1870 and in 1914, by Germany. He and many of the French felt it would be rash indeed to enter a post-war world in which there was no guarantee of French security against a future German invasion. Ferdinand Foch, the Allied Generalissimo, and at least in 1918, the French soldier closest to Clemenceau, argued that France should occupy the Rhineland and possibly even control Belgium in order to protect its eastern and northern frontiers from a German invasion. Those measures for French security might well not be sufficient because France in population terms, as well as in terms of military strength, had really struggled before 1914 to match Germany. 
France needed an ally on Germany's eastern frontier in order to balance France's strength to the west. In 1914, that role had been fulfilled by Russia. But in 1919, Russia was no longer a significant European power as a result of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk. What France needed to the east of Germany was a strong Poland. It supported Poland in its own war for independence against Russia, and it contributed to the training and the armament of a Polish army. So here we have a structure for post-war Europe, which depends on balance of power considerations more than it depends on the idea of the rule of law, and recognizes the possibility of war as integral to how we understand international relations. In other words, very different from the Wilsonian vision. The problem for Clemenceau is that the tide is running with Wilson. What Clemenceau seems to be arguing is what caused the war in the first place, in some people's views, rather than a way out of the situation which would cause the war. In the end, what Clemenceau does is compromise. He does not accept Foch's desire for greater strength on France's eastern frontier through the permanent occupation of the Rhineland or through the control of Belgium and accepts that he must seem to be more reasonable in that context in order to appease the Americans. Instead, what he tries to do, and largely successfully, is to get Wilson to accept that the League of Nations will be a great powers alliance, an alliance of the victors of the First World War in order to guarantee the post-war international order. So instead of being this dispassionate global vision for a League of Nations, it is in some respects becoming the vehicle for a continuation of great power politics. And Wilson has little choice but to compromise on that if he's going to get Clemenceau's agreement, and to some extent, if he's going to get Lloyd George's and Britain's agreement, because Britain too is close to Europe and more likely to be caught up in a European war if there is one than is the United States. So in the Treaty of Versailles is this rather bizarre treatment of Germany. You have an aspiration in the League that it should be made up of a number of equal sovereign states and Germany treated as a guilty party. Germany is not initially allowed to be a member. It doesn't become a member of the League of Nations until 1926. And Germany is very much treated, not just through what is called the war guilt clause, but also through the imposition of reparations as the defeated power. So rather than victory to lead to peace, which is what Wilson had aspired to at the beginning of 1918, you have peace leading to the declaration of victory over Germany. The standard wisdom is that the Treaty of Versailles fails because the United States Senate and Congress refused to ratify it. The Executive Council of the League of Nations is made up initially of the victorious powers, but those victorious powers do not include the United States. They are made up of Britain, France, Japan, and Italy. Many Americans have come to see the decision not to ratify the Treaty of Versailles and with it the League of Nations as a consequence of American isolationism. The story that they tell themselves is that America had quite rightly withdrawn from the affairs of Europe, an idea embodied in the Monroe Doctrine, the idea that America confined itself to the control and dominance of the Western Hemisphere and that it had only entered this war reluctantly and partly because of British manipulation of American public opinion. There were isolationists in the United States in 1919, people who felt it had been wrong 
to get involved in this war, and that America should make sure that it was not engaged in future European wars. The majority opinion, however, in 1919, particularly in the Senate, was in favour of greater international engagement. The trouble was that those internationalists were themselves divided as to how deep that commitment should be. Some felt it should essentially be very light touch, that America should be involved in the League of Nations, but should certainly stop short of entering into any military commitment to European security. And others felt strongly that without a commitment militarily of some sort, there could be no real force in the undertaking to keep Europe at peace. Those groups of internationalists fragmented rather than united during the course of the debate in the United States about ratification. And the problem was not helped by Woodrow Wilson himself, who became stubborn and dogmatic in defending the League as he had envisaged it in Paris in 1919. In particular, there was this issue of how far the United States would remain sovereign in the control of its own foreign policy and in relation to the use of military force. Wilson argued that because the United States would be a member of the Executive Council, it would have the right to veto any use of force and so would retain that sovereign right. But many in the Senate felt that the decision to use force should be one taken by the Senate and reserved to the Senate itself. The reality of the difference here is not great because either way, the United States, either through the President on the Executive Council or through the Senate in Washington, had the absolute control on the use of American armed force. But Wilson stuck dogmatically to his reading of what had been agreed in Paris partly because he was in hock to his allies. Having done a deal with the French and the British particularly, he needed to be able to deliver that back in the United States. The fact that he could not do so was also partly his fault, because in the elections to Congress at the end of 1918, he had ruptured the bipartisan agreement between Democrats and Republicans. The entry to the war had produced an agreement between both parties to support the war effort, and there was no reason to expect that that agreement would not continue into support for the peace settlement which had arisen out of the war. But the fact that Wilson became committed during the congressional elections to the support of the Democrats over the Republicans broke that bipartisan consensus. Wilson did not take any representative of the Republicans with him to Paris. He therefore confirmed that in some ways this was a Democrat project and so lost the support of Republican internationalists. In the final vote, American isolationists and Republican internationalists united against the president and rejected his strict interpretation and his strict enforcement of what he saw as the League of Nations agreement embodied in the Treaty of Versailles. The fact that Wilson suffered a stroke while negotiating the ratification may in part explain his failure to handle it with more political adroitness, his failure to divide and rule the Republicans, but it may also reflect this rather dogmatic and stubborn side of Wilson, which is one of his least attractive characteristics. The American failure to ratify the League of Nations was not the end of the League of Nations. 
It still came into existence. It still functioned. It would reach its maximum size in 1934-35 when it had 58 member states. By then, the Soviet Union had joined those states. There were plenty of signs that the League of Nations had an enduring future. And there were other agreements which underpinned this notion of an international order within Europe. The Treaty of Locarno endeavoured to put a full stop on the boundary revisions within Europe and to ensure international acceptance of them. The Kellogg-Briand Pact of 1928, much more ambitious in its undertaking, promised that states that signed up to this agreement would not use war as a way of resolving their differences. The real problem that confronts the League of Nations is that in Wilson's vision, it also depended on the idea that democracy was a growing force in governmental terms, that there was a democratic revolution going on. As we now know, the story is not one of growing democracy, but of the rise of populism and above all the emergence of fascism. You really have to put that into the story in order to understand Wilson's failure. Wilson saw democracy as work in progress, just as he saw the League of Nations as work in progress. He accepted that not all states that became members of the League of Nations would be as fully democratic as he might have liked. The star witness here is the British Empire, which from the very outset said all of its dominions, that is to say Australia, New Zealand, Canada and South Africa, should have independent representation at the League of Nations. And so too should India, more obviously in an intermediate status between dominion and colony than any of the so-called white dominions. And the United States accepted that, accepted it reluctantly. But Wilson was effectively prepared to compromise on that notion of democracy, at least for the time being, on the understanding that dominions and India would in due course become more democratic in their government and more fully independent. So Wilson's principle of democracy is being compromised. More worrying was that the first two powers that obviously broke with the League of Nations were themselves victorious powers who were members of the Executive Council. The first was Japan. Japan had already during the First World War made clear its ambitions in China, China protested to the League of Nations because the Japanese had entered Manchuria. The League of Nations took up the case, reprimanded Japan, and told it to withdraw from Manchuria. Japan refused in February 1933 and walked out of the League of Nations. Significantly, another of the victorious powers, Italy, also broke with the League. Italy had become a fascist state under Mussolini in 1922, the first fascist state. It did so over its invasion of Abyssinia, today's Ethiopia, and its behavior reflected its frustration with the terms of the Paris peace treaties, its sense that it had not had its ambitions fulfilled, and the invasion of Abyssinia was part of that story. The point about this failure of the League of Nations is that there is no straight line between the way that Germany is treated in the aftermath of the First World War and the way it behaves in the outbreak of the Second World War. Germany is not the first power to overthrow the League of Nations. Japan is. Germany is not the first power to use military force. In defiance of the League of Nations, both Japan and Italy are. 
The ostensible cause for Germany to leave the League of Nations, which it does in late 1933, is that the League of Nations has itself not honoured its obligations as Germany interprets them. Under the terms of the Treaty of Versailles, Germany is limited to a short-service army of, of 100,000 men. What Germany actually did was that it used a short-service army of 100,000 men to rotate soldiers through, to create a reserve. It also used the fact that the Soviet Union was not a signatory to the Versailles Peace Treaty to undertake covert rearmament within Russian territory out of view of Allied inspectors. The German army is therefore planning on its eventual re-expansion, its move from being a police force, which is all it seemed to be in 1919, to being an effective military power within Europe once more. The response from the other powers was that they would all disarm, that disarmament would be progressive, that Germany was in a way the outlier, and throughout the 1920s and into the 1930s, the League of Nations in Geneva is debating disarmament. Some of those discussions are serious to do with use of air power and the threat of bombing, and some of them become quite frankly trivial. A.G. MacDonald, who wrote a wonderful satirical novel called England, There England, MacDonald was a Scot, has his hero become part of the British delegation to the League of Nations, and he attends a debate where they're discussing whether or not horseshoe nails are themselves potentially contraband of war, because they can be used for military purposes in order to shoe horses for cavalry. And of course, that's satirical, but it makes the point that for many, these discussions are going nowhere. They're bogged down in detail and forgetting the big picture. So when in October 1933, Hitler, having come to power, says that Germany will withdraw from the League of Nations because the League of Nations has not fulfilled its obligations to secure progressive disarmament, he has a case. Remember, too, that Germany is not the first to breach the terms of the League of Nations. Japan is. So the rearmament of Germany, the precursor to Germany being able to become a power that will overthrow the Versailles Peace Agreement and destroy the effectiveness of the League of Nations within Europe, comes through Hitler's rise to power much more than it is a direct consequence of what is agreed in 1919 in Paris. The Second World War breaks out in Europe in 1939 directly because of German aggression. And it is striking that as the Second World War expands, particularly after the US entry in 1941, the ideals and ambitions of the League of Nations return. The United Nations is in many respects the creation of the League of Nations once more, but with teeth this time, with the capacity to impose Security Council resolutions and to use military force to do so, and with the experience of a Second World War the capacity of states to recognize that universal peace is something that should be a global ambition and should have some form of concrete institutional expression. In the next podcast, I shall be talking about Woodrow Wilson's principle of national self-determination, what it meant, and the challenges it presented in Central and Eastern Europe. That was Professor Sir Hugh Strawn. You have been listening to Peacemaking in Paris, a Chrome Radio production for UCL Institute of Education. The producer was Katrina Oliphant, with sound design by Chris Sharp.